This is the Walking Home from the ICU podcast. I'm Kelly Dayton, a nurse practitioner and ICU consultant. I help teams create awake and walking ICUs through evidence-based sedation and mobility practices. By hearing from survivors, clinicians, and researchers, we'll explore how to give ICU patients the best chance to walk out of the ICU and go home to survive and thrive. Welcome to the ICU Revolution. The B of the bundle is for both awakening and breathing trials. Putting these two steps together on the same letter has led us to believe that they must always be together. Clearly, you must first have patients awake to do a breathing trial. Yet, you don't always have to be doing a breathing trial to have patients awake. So though they are not supposed to always be intertwined, failure to properly awaken patients significantly impacts breathing trials. Dr. Wes Ely mentioned last episode, the diurnal study in which it was found that sedation was often increased overnight and led to failed breathing trials. Another study investigating all the elements that lead to a failed breathing trial, such as timing, management, epidemiology, they found that the main predictor of a failed breathing trial, prolonged time on the ventilator, and failure on the ventilator was deep sedation. It didn't matter the patient's diagnosis, acuity, epidemiology. It was us. It was our treatment. By failing to practice the ABCDEF bundle, we set patients up to stay on the ventilator longer and have worse outcomes. This episode, we have respiratory therapist expert Karsten Roberts with us to give us the big picture of the power of breathing trials. Karsten, welcome to the podcast. Can you introduce yourself to us? Yeah, my name is Karsten Roberts. I am a respiratory therapist and uh, teaching professor at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Um, I am uh, an RRT, RRT ACCS, and I'm a fellow of the American Association for Respiratory Care. Well, thank you so much for joining us and for covering the B um, and the breathing trial of the B part of the ABCDF bundle. I think there are a lot of misconceptions that are going to be important to clarify today. So let's just cover the basics. What are spontaneous breathing trials? Yeah, I mean, obviously, that's a good place to start. Uh, what what exactly are we trying to accomplish? So a spontaneous breathing trial is an assessment that we conduct to evaluate a patient's ability to breathe on their own um, once some um, some resolution of disease process has come to um, to an end. So as patients are are healing from Injury, surgery, um, you know, ARDS, um, are, are patients available or are they, do patients have the ability to breathe on their own without mechanical ventilatory support? Um, so spontaneous breathing trials involve some temporary rem, um, removal of the, or a reduction in the level of mechanical support that we're giving them. So decreasing the pressure support that we give them or decreasing, take, removing um, mechanical breaths from the ventilator and letting a patient just breathe on their own. And there's different ways that you can accomplish that through a T-piece trial, pressure support trials, um, or just CPAP. Um, but allowing the patient to see, uh, to breathe on their own and see if they're able to uh, accomplish that. And when and how did we even start doing breathing trials? Have they always existed? 
Um, you know, so there's been a big push by the Society for Critical Care Medicine and others um, to to really make this a part of um, at, uh, the the A, a through F bundle. Um, back in 2013 is really when this push um, kind of broadly started. Um, but, you know, there's always been some effort. Um, back in the 90s, there was um, there were some studies that were done that um, really looked at what's the best way to wean patients off of mechanical ventilation. So as long as positive pressure has existed, there has always been some effort made to get patients off of mechanical ventilation. Um, but really, you see like, um, Esteban back in like 1997 really start to compare different methodologies of trying to get patients off of SBT. Like where we are now um, in time and history has come with a lot of evidence-based research that's been done over the last 30 years. Um, but that, you know, I think that I think it's safe to say that there's always been some effort to figure out what's the best way to get patients off of mechanical ventilation since positive pressure um, ventilation has been around. And I love what I learned from respiratory therapists, some of your kind of the sayings that you SRT say, we, you know, we get patients on ventilators to get them off. That's the point of mechanical ventilation is to have them independently breathe later. Um, I think sometimes we miss that at the bedside, that that perspective of this is a dangerous machine. This comes with risks and repercussions, and we want to get this off as soon as possible. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that the goal to is as soon as a patient is intubated, the goal is to have the tube removed and have them spontaneously breathing on their own as soon as possible. And I think that you're right. I think that there, we do kind of sometimes miss that perspective when when we're caring from patient for patients day to day um, and kind of doing some of the more tasky things that have to be done in an ICU in order to provide quality patient care. And I think. Just like sedation practices vary between ICUs, I think breathing trials vary between ICUs. That a lot of culture impacts how we do them. So what do we know and what do we not know about the timing and parameters of breathing trials? So that's a great point. Um, you know, as, as much as we want to think that evidence-based practices being um, practiced everywhere, um, it, it really isn't. I think that there is a, there are wide... Um, a wide range of how how things are accomplished. Sometimes it's referred to as a weaning trial. And, you know, really, it's more appropriate that we probably talk about it as ventilator liberation. Um, but again, like you said, the cultural impact is different in, in different places. So I think what we know about um, about the timing of spontaneous breathing trials is that it's associated with improving, you know, improvements in the disease process. So as patients um, are showing signs of progression towards healing, then it, it's probably time to start working on um, weaning sedation and getting patients um, breathing on their own. So they're usually performed when patients meet certain criteria adequate oxygenation, adequate hemodynamic stability. Um, patients are generally stable and, you know, more awake and more alert. And then, um, you know, again, there, there are a variety of ways that the, the SBTs are performed now using a T-piece trial where there's no pressure support, no continuous positive airway pressure, CPAP, um, or, you know, using some level of pressure support, current 
you know, the current ATS um, SCCM guidelines say that we should be using or chest, I should say chest guidelines say that we should be using some level of pressure support to um, support a patient's breathing while they're weaning from um, from that. But, you know, there's there's still a ver- variety of opinions and it's somewhat of a controversial um you know, it's somewhat controversial how we how we actually conduct the SBT. So that's some of the stuff that we know. Absolutely. And I, I think um, part of that controversy is the relationship between breathing trials and awakening trials. I think culturally we've immersed them, especially since they fall on the same letter of the B. I feel like even visually that reaffirms this um, dependent relationship. Um, but in my experience in awake and walking ICU, patients are rarely sedated. Yeah. So we're not really doing awakening trials throughout their course on the ventilator. We're not waiting for ventilator settings to be minimal to take sedation off. It's just off or it's so minimal that um, it doesn't really impede a breathing trial, but breathing trials don't happen until later. So what about this relationship? Are they synonymous? Do they have do you have to be doing a breathing trial to do an awakening trial? Like how did this hell happen? So I, you know, I think that that nursing has an obligation to always have a patient as minimally sedated as possible. So I don't think that spontaneous breathing trials and spontaneous awakening trials are synonymous. They some they often go hand in hand. They often happen at the same time. However, as you mentioned, there is, you know, really when you we talk about the bundle as a whole, uh, patients really should be awake and alert and tolerating mechanical ventilation. That's not to say that they should shouldn't have full ventilatory support as long as they're tolerating the ventilator. Uh, you know, you I've had patients sit like wide awake and be completely tolerant of the mechanical ventilator or they're completely wide awake and they're not tolerant. If they're not tolerant of the ventilator, then let's balance out the sedation and keep them awake, but tolerating the ventilator. Uh, I think when we talk about spontaneous awakening trials and spontaneous breathing trials specifically and how they work is we're really talking about a patient that's met the criteria that can have all sedation stopped at a certain time of the morning or whenever you do your trials. And as soon as they are ready, uh, the respiratory therapist does an assessment of their ability to breathe and then turns off the ventilator, so to speak. We say turn off the ventilator, but what we really mean is remove the mechanical breaths, put them on positive pressure, uh, spontaneous breathing, and see what see what the patient's ability to breathe on their own is and if they're not able to do that we give them back full support cut sedation in half and then try again 24 hours later that's the ideal situation that's not always how it goes because as you mentioned culturally icus aren't there yet but really if you did it by the textbook that that's how it should work and i i think this is where i see a lot of the struggle is when culturally we think we are doing awakening trials just to do a breathing trial, when the breathing trial fails, the awakening trial concludes because of the words, even just trial, vacation, interruption. We have this sense of it, this is temporary. We don't want patients to be free of sedation um, as long as they're receiving support from the ventilator. 
And that's all cultural, right? So I think even just that automatic resumption of sedation after a failed breathing trial is really concerning because we don't understand the risks of sedation for every drop. It increases isoquired weakness and delirium. But why do breathing trials fail? Well, I think that that breathing trials fail for a variety of reasons. You know, it has to do with underlying disease process. So somebody that comes in with COPD or asthma, um, it depends on how long they've been mechanically ventilated. They can be completely deconditioned. If you have a patient that's been on a ventilator for several weeks or or months, even it's uh, going to be a lot harder for them to um to wean from the ventilator, you know, uh, do they have adequate oxygenation at baseline? You know, you know, um, as soon as a as soon as a spontaneous breathing trial starts, you have to realize that the patient is doing more work by necessity, and therefore oxygen consumption goes up, and that's going to be more of a challenge for the patient throughout the trial. Um, and so you you have all of those things, muscle fatigue and um, just generalized weakness from um, being being deconditioned. And I think that that's really, really important to consider where early mobility comes in, especially for those patients that have um, have been so deconditioned from from whatever disease process brought them into the ICU in the first place. Yeah, there are so many reasons. Right. And I think sometimes RTs are frustrated because patients are not adequately desedated enough, right? They're still pretty groggy. Um, sometimes it's hard to tell what's hypoactive delirium, what's a metabolized station, or if the station was just too newly off. Um, and then I think that gets mixed in with weakness. I don't know that we're really panicked or saying they're tachypnic, their long, their um, volumes are low, their rate increase, they're getting diaphoretic, they're getting tired. And we're not talking about what's happening with the diaphragm because you're, you know, saying like it's very innate to you that they're too weak to breathe. And what about the timing of it? When is the best time to do a breathing trial? Everyone's starting to, to do awakening trials at five in the morning for un reasons that are unclear to me. What do you recommend as far as the prime time for a breathing trial? Uh, so I don't think that I can recommend a time to, to do a spontaneous breathing trial because I don't think that we have the literature that supports a specific time to do, to do it. Um, you, you know, you're right there. There's a push to do a spontaneous breathing trial at 5 a.m. so that the patient is teed up to do uh, to be extubated. Um, now there is literature that shows that when a patient is extubated by 9 a.m., they can get to, especially in a like in a medical ICU, like what I'm used to working in. Um, the the patients, if they're extubated by 9 a.m., can be to the medical floor by 1 p.m. <laughs> decrease decreases hospital length of stay by one and a half days which is significant. I mean, right. it is statistically significant in, in um, the, the research that's been done, but I mean, that's huge. That's a, that's a big deal to be out of the ICU, out of the ICU sooner and be out of the hospital a day and a half sooner. Um, the patient is just that much closer to, to their activities of daily living. Um, so there is that evidence that exists that, that says we can get them out in the morning, we can observe them throughout the day and then get them to the floor. So I would advocate, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be at 5 a.m., but if you can have that patient ready to be extubated by the time rounds, like if your team is rounding at 9 o'clock or 10 o'clock, get the tube out while the team is there, gathered, watching the patient, 
and then they can get out of the ICU even as soon as that day. That's a that's a big win for that patient. And uh, you know, then I think that there's a question of like, well, should we be doing multiple SBTs during a day? Should we do one in the morning and one in the evening? There has there is some some data out there that or there are some studies that have done that. Um, I don't think that we necessarily know still whether a morning SBT or an evening SBT or even a nighttime SBT and extubation is better or worse for the patient. We don't, we don't know that in total, but, but we, we, we do have some evidence that suggests that the, again, it goes back to what I said a, a little while ago is the sooner, the better everything. If we, the, the sooner we initiate it, the sooner the patient gets extubated, the sooner they go home. And if they're failing, let's say, cause they have a parent, um, diaphragm dysfunction, for example, um, does frequency improve outcomes it, to rehabilitate the diaphragm? Does frequency um, of that challenge help rehabilitate the diaphragm, the respiratory muscles? I, I think that the best evidence that we have at the moment suggests that if they fail once in a day, they're likely to fail again. So let's put them back on full ventilator support and try again tomorrow. Now, that's not to say that implementation of non-invasive ventilation after extubation wouldn't support them potentially. So, you know, that's maybe even a whole nother conversation about what happens after extubation. So you've successfully passed an SBT, you successfully extubate the patient. Now the goal is to keep them off the ventilator. Mm -hmm. and, and in what way are we going to do that? So ventilator liberation isn't limited to the criteria that they meet to start an SBT, how they successfully pass an SBT, whether it's with pressure support or without pressure support, and then get them extubated. It's what happens after all of that, after all of that is done. How do we keep them off then? How do we meet 28 days and 60 days and 90 days off the ventilator? I think that's where early mobility is so key in that aspect because we're engaging the diaphragm, the respiratory muscles to sit, stand, walk, and we're preparing them to be successful after. You need functional muscles to be able to cough effectively, to protect your airway, clear your secretions, drop your diaphragm, take adequate lung volume, sustain your own work of breathing. You need those muscles. So this needs to be a focus even upon intubation. How are we going to set them up so that we're not having failed breathing trials because of weakness and re-intubations because of weakness? Um, so it really goes back to the multidisciplinary approach. So at the very, very beginning, how does the team come together? How is respiratory therapy going to function with the nurse? And how are the nurse and the respiratory therapist going to function with the physical therapist and the occupational therapist to do the early mobility to do, you know, even if it's, I mean, this, this has been a part of my, my practice in the ICU since the very beginning of my career. I worked in a cardiac ICU at the beginning of my career. And of course, we know that the goal is to have those patients extubated within four hours of, of cardiac surgery. But then even an hour after we get them extubated, they're already dangling at the bed, at the side of the bed. They're already up in the cardiac chair, already taking deep breaths and coughing with their pillow. And, and that's those, after having this, their sternum cracked open. Why aren't we doing that on the medical side, right? I that I mean that's <laughs> right. That's kind of my point. You know, if we're yeah. able to do that on the on the cardiac surgery side of things that we all know is super complicated and can go very wrong very quickly. 
I think that we should be able to do that on the medical intensive care side as well. And we, and, and again, that's one of those things that I think that we put put in silos and we're like, well, medical ICU isn't surgical ICU and surgical ICU isn't cardiothoracic surgery ICU. I, I'm, I'm an advocate of breaking down some of those walls. Yes, those are totally different patient populations. Yes, I totally agree that um, there are differences in the way that we manage their care and, and, um, and how they get rehabilitated. However, you know, the physical therapists in that I see working in the cardiac, cardiothoracic um, ICUs are some of the most skilled physical therapists because of the way that they're managing those patients. And I'm, I'm thinking of two very specific people right now. Yeah, me too. That. And they're awesome. They're just, they're really, um, they're really involved in every aspect of, of that pay of those patients care from, and, 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 you know, people are like, well, you know, they have their sternum cracked open, whatever. Like I've seen, I've seen patients that were delirious in the CT surgery unit have an in-bed cycle placed. If you've been listening to this podcast, you're likely convinced that sedation and mobility practices in the ICU need to change. The ICU community is facing incredible difficulty with the trauma from the pandemic, staffing crisis, and burnout. We cannot afford to continue practices that result in poor patient outcomes, more time in the ICU, higher healthcare costs, and greater workload for the ICU team. Yet the prospect of changing decades of beliefs, practices, and culture across all disciplines of the ICU is a daunting task. How does this transformation start? It can begin with a consultation with me to discuss your team's current practices, barriers, and to formulate a plan to help your ICU become an awake and walking ICU. I help teams master the ABCDEF bundle through education, consulting, simulation training, and bedside support. Let's work together to move your team into the future of evidence-based ICU care. Click the link in the show notes of this episode to find out more. And start cycling and their delirium went away within five minutes. Like the patient was like, he like literally turned his head to his wife and was like, oh, hi. From being completely delirious and like, and then interactive with his wife with after five minutes of pedaling a cycle. And, and, and if I wasn't, it's so hard to describe that because if I, I know you happen, have to see it, right. You have to see it happen because it sounds like you're making it up. Yeah. But I share that experience over and over again. And I'm seeing that replicated throughout so many ICUs and getting that feedback. This is, this is a real thing, <laughs> but in some of our protocols, it seems like, especially in the medical ICU, um, when we don't allow patients to mobilize if they can't follow commands, well, then they're just stuck there. So we have to have, and I just would invite RTs, everyone to advocate for mobility to be used to um, treat delirium, to treat failed breathing trials, to look at the big picture. And as we approach these elements of the ADAF bundle, let's keep the overall goal in mind and intact. But is that always recognized and discussed at the bedside when there's a failed breathing trial? I don't think it is. And actually, as we're talking about this in this very moment, I'm thinking about a specific patient that had a lung transplant several years ago, and it wasn't well recognized initially that he he actually had a phrenic nerve injury. And uh, and so he he you know, his diaphragm was still functional. It just was a lot weaker. And there, there are some ideas as to how we can mitigate that. 
Um, you know, there's some newer modes of ventilation, um, such as Nava, um, that, that could potentially help you. Like the idea was even floated to use a chest cuirass and using negative pressure ventilation to wow. ventilate the gentleman because, because he was so deconditioned and he had this phrenic nerve injury. Um, there was a lot going into it. So we even might go further back prior to even having positive pressure and even think about other ways of ventilating patients other than other than what we're typically used to in the ICA. Unfortunately, he ended up back on ECMO and dying before we could really get to the point where he was um, able to support his breathing on his own. Um, but that's that's one situation where you, where where diaphragmatic weakness and muscle fatigue and the strength that patients lose while they're in the ICU really, really struck me. And that's on a team that's assessing for it, discussing it, trying to find the root cause of it. What I see often happening is that we have a failed breathing trial. You know, the RT says it's failed. The nurse comes in, they see they're, they're back on assist control and they resume sedation when in reality that sedation is one of the main culprits of that failed trial. <laughs> yeah, the absolutely. might have myotoxic and then early mobility is impossible. So how are you going to rehabilitate those respiratory muscles and the diaphragm to be strong enough to over to take over independent breathing if we've automatically resumed sedation and taken away the opportunity to rehabilitate? I think, well, I, I think even beyond that, I think there's another important piece that we're missing here, which is um, talking about anxiety. Um, I've, I've been really interested for um, quite some time about the psychology of the ICU. I mean, we talk about like about PTSD and post ICU syndrome, but what about the anxiety that patients experience already in the ICU while they're in ho in hospital, like, or even before they were, you know, I think that it would be really interesting to take a look at um, the patients that have baseline anxiety disorders and how they do with mechanical ventilation. Uh, there was a, num a number of years ago that I worked with the um, psychiatric team at the hospital I was working at at the time to really try to work through some of the stuff. But it, again, it takes a specialized team. You have to have not only a psychiatrist, but probably a psychologist on staff that can really um, get to the heart of what the patient's issues are. And, and there could be any spectrum of uh, of of anxiety that in, is involved and you know propofol and other sedative drugs probably affect that as well so oh. um, it gets yeah i mean you're you're sedating them they're they're literally rotting during that time they're atrophying they're developing this delirium then we yank them back into reality and they're trying to understand what's going on. They're having hallucinations. They're in a totally different world. They are weak. They're breathing through a straw and it's hard to breathe because they're so weak. And so it's, I, I, I'm just trying to imagine what that's like to suddenly be jerked into this reality where you're having to work for every single breath and you don't understand where you're at and why you're doing it. That's got to be terrifying. So what is the tachypnea from? Yeah. Is it from just the weakness and or is it from the very valid anxiety? And you know what? I think that it takes a very keen eye from on the on the part of the respiratory therapist to be able to kind of pull apart which is which. And, and it's not it's not an easy task. It's it takes a it takes critical thinking skills on behalf of the clinicians 
communication between the bedside nurse and the respiratory therapist and being able to communicate that back to the team and say, look, I think that there's probably something more going on here. You know, can we, um, you, you know, can we change the medication that they're on? Can we change, you know, is there something more that we could be doing here? Um, should they be getting this much? And, and going back to the point that you made a, a few minutes ago about the way that, uh, that patients metabolize medication, you know, uh, um, I think of patients that are on fentanyl, even on low doses of fentanyl, that that is potentially too much for them because they're not metabolizing it well because of advanced age or or whatever. Uh, renal function. Absolutely, absolutely. And so we don't we don't always think about that. And again, it takes uh, uh, clinicians that are keenly aware of every aspect of pharmacology, pharmacologic. Um, attributes that, that affect the, the spontaneous breathing trial as well. Um, so I really encourage um, students and, and therapists that are new to practice, even therapists that have been practicing for a long time, to be aware of what the nurse is doing, <laughs> being able to put that as a part of your patient ventilator assessment is what what's going on with the sedation, what's going on with the drugs that the patient is on, and why why or why not is the patient being successful truly? And I would love to see our teams take more of a leadership on that and to teach their colleagues, say, hey, they failed this trial, but here's what I saw during that trial. I'm worried about diaphragm dysfunction. I'm worried about their anxiety. They look like they have delirium. Um, we need to mobilize them because we need to rehabilitate their diaphragm, improve secretion clearance, clear out their delirium. Um, you know, let's try that before we restart sedation. Or do we really want to restart sedation? Is there an indication for sedation? Um, here's what I'm concerned about. And just to really stimulate that conversation and bring evidence to the table would be powerful. Because if your goal as an RT is to get them off the ventilator, then you've got to be the stewards of that ventilator, which is not just the ventilator. It's the whole picture. Yes, 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 yes. And res respiratory therapists are fully capable of that leadership role at the bedside. And I think that it's sometimes hard for us to see that, uh, but respiratory therapists definitely need to be more involved in the care team and, um, and not just getting the work done. I think we need to see ourselves more of, of, a of a career oriented, a professional oriented, um, profession, uh, a career oriented profession and, and less of just getting tasks done throughout the day. We, we, you know, we, we can, we have the knowledge, we have the skills to be able to assess those things. It's just applying it and feeling and, and make, and being confident that in our abilities to do that and, you know, have those, co have those collaborative conversations with the, the nurses and the physicians, the, the providers that are, are also caring for, for the patient. Yeah, I want RTs to understand how big of an impact they can have in a patient's trajectory of their core, of their time in the ICU, but also their entire lives. Like if a respiratory therapist is saying, I'm worried about diaphragm dysfunction, let's get them up. And they re help rehabilitate them. They saved them a tracheostomy, which could save them days to weeks on the ventilator. They could save them tracheal stenosis, further decline. I mean, 
they can be that, that total course correction in that moment. Um, but again, yeah, I think we're all trained to be very robotic in our roles and just go through the process. And I think without critically thinking through breathing trials, we are causing a lot more work for ourselves. <laughs> we're causing days to weeks longer than later when we get a failed trial, we resume sedation. It's just rinse and repeat the next day. We never actually get anywhere until the patient's traked and pegged and sent out. And then we consider that a success. What if we consider tracheostomies, especially for prolonged time on the ventilator, as not a sentinel event, but something to really review? (laughs) You know what I mean? In our COVID patients, if we said, hey, they're on a PEEP of 5 and 40%, but they couldn't sustain their own work of breathing, how did that happen? Let's rewind. Let's look at the whole course of events. Did we practice the ADF bundle here? What if we took that approach and learned from those moments? I, I think that it would change the culture a, as a whole. And, you know, I go I go back and forth with the tracheostomy because sometimes, you know, we're talking about a tracheostomy after only one week on the ventilator. Um, I've worked in institutions where it's, you know, a lot of this has to do with early intervention. You know, whether you're talking about um, trying to get an SBT or SAT done as soon as possible um, or early mobility as soon as possible in the course or tracheostomy early in the course. Um, I've also worked at places that wait a couple of weeks, you know, really are waiting like 14 days before we really pull the trigger. And I think that that's really the culture that says this isn't the what the outcome that we want. And we don't call it a sentinel event, like you said, but if I think that if we did, I think that it would change the culture and maybe we would we would be more proactive in initiating spontaneous breathing trials appropriately and not just like writing it off. Well, they're not ready. I I can't even tell you the number of times that I've seen that note. Uh, The patient wasn't ready for an SBT. Well, why? You know, you kind of always have to ask why. How much was that it? was just agitation? I mean, they turned out sedation. Well, sometimes, out- it turned out, sometimes it would turn out that they they had they the nurse increased the sedation or increased the pain medication uh, because they were bathing the patient at five thirty in the morning to get them ready for day shift, and and then it it was a sedation issue and not necessarily the patient might have been totally ready to come off the ventilator, but they got resedated for x y and z reason and and then a full 24 hours goes by again before they're even ready to go um you know and so so certainly we don't need to do happy doing a breathing trial to do an awakening trial but you have to do an awakening trial to do a breathing trial (laughs) yeah i think that's the point i think really the relationship with going back to the beginning of this conversation i think that really is the conversation you know, they're, they're not necessarily, um, I think you said it perfectly a, a moment ago. And sometimes nurses will say, well, RT is not always available. So I can't do an awakening trial. That's, and to that's me, that's, that's revealing. That, that is revealing. I mean, that's, that's on us. Um, we need well, to or, or that kind of feeds into the misconception that Awakening trials are just for breathing trials. But right. if a patient comes out agitated, respiratory therapy can adjust things on the ventilator, maybe help provide more comfort and help treat that agitation. So I think they do need to be available, but you don't wait till RT's in the room to do an awakening trial. Um, 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, cause respiratory therapists do get busy, you know, like we're, we're the ones that are going on every single transport on the vent, uh, in the ICU. We're doing the bronchoscopies, even in the middle of the night, you know, that stuff, especially if you're working in a big urban center, like I'm accustomed to then the respiratory therapists that work night shift are just as busy as the respiratory therapists that work day shift. Right. I, they, they are they are running around um, sometimes even more under resourced than we are during the day a lot of times. Um, so so you're right. It, you know it can't just be like oh the respiratory therapist isn't here so I'm not going to cut sedation because they might not come back. Well, you know it just takes a collaborative environment uh, and a culture that is willing to have that collaboration um, to to be able to ha- accomplish those things. And again, I, I'm used to medical surgical ICU where patients are allowed to wake up shortly after intubation, mobilize them shortly after they've walked even on people of 18, hundred percent the whole time. So, you know, they're awake, but are they ready for a breathing trial at those settings? Not necessarily, but when they get to lower settings, we're going to put them in CPAP, take them for a walk, sit in the chair, and then we're looking at extubation and seeing how they're doing. Yeah. You and I talked about that before, um, you know, just in, in our conversations prior, prior to this recording. Um, and, and I think it, it, it is really important to, to, I don't want to put those things into silos necessarily, but, but sometimes you do have to see the difference between, between the awakening trial, the early mobility and the ability to actually wean from mechanical ventilation is different things. Um, they, they are clearly a part, all part of that, of the bundle. And yet sometimes we just have to kind of reconsider how we look at each individual piece of the bundle and understand the role they play in the overall outcomes. Right. Exactly. And how they relate to each other. So, um, anything else you would want to share with the IC community? We're going to do another episode with you later about the RT role and things that um, get in the way of RTs being able to really optimize their role. But what else would you have them know about the ABCDF bundle and how this all ties in together. Um, I, I think that that we really just have to um, think more about the collaborative relationship that we have. We all play a role in it. You know, we can't do this um, individually. We can't, you know, the, the nurse can't be over here doing their thing. The respiratory therapist can't be over here doing their thing and not, communicating the the communication the collaboration and the the joint effort to improve patient outcomes has to be central to this process and and then being able to then communicate and make recommendations to the physician staff or the provider staff um, that lead to to better outcomes it's it, you know we're continually monitoring we're continuing re, continually reassessing um, and, uh, you know, our, our, path, our, our paths do cross our community, you know, so the respiratory therapist needs to be knowledgeable about what the nurse is doing. And the nurse needs to be knowledgeable about what the respiratory therapist is doing, not to step on each other's toes. You know, we got to stay in our lanes, but, um, but we can't but, utilize each other's expertise if we don't know what that expertise is. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that that at the end of the day, that's the most important thing is, is the collaborative relationship between nursing and respiratory therapists. And that's what I'm seeing people really enjoy as their teams really start to make this transition is that they get to know and trust and um, 
work closely with their colleagues. They feel supported. Things run smoother. They see patient outcomes improve, but they just have fun. Um, It's fun to watch them actually talk to each other. I don't know. I feel like COVID, they didn't really, other than to Sarah and say, hey, the alarm's beeping and RT's like, well, give them paralytic. Now it's, hey, we have these patients on ventilators, RT saying, PT, when are you available? RN, what time works for you? Let's, let's work. Let's make this happen. And then they just make magic happen. They see it and they um, feel supported in their roles. And it's a really beautiful thing. And that is the ABCDF bundle. That, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, I think that there's so much that we lost during COVID. Um, I think that, that we need to get back to a place where it is fun and, and where we are, where we enjoy the community that we work with. Um, I, 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 I don't think that that's like overall true, but certainly we're at a different space than we were three or four years ago, you know, certainly lost the ability to, to seek out the physical therapists and say, Hey, can we walk this patient today? Cause it just wasn't possible. Um, and, and you're right. It, it, once we, once we start having fun and we have those collaborative multidisciplinary relationships that we are so good at um, at having, it, it just, it makes everything better. It makes our ability to cope with the tragedy that ICU is sometimes so much better. And, and then again, if we can be in a good space with our own well-being and with the, the well-being of the team, the patient is the one that ultimately benefits from it. Absolutely. It's been test and pro- tested and proven. And I completely agree that this is going to be the key to our healing from the, the pandemic. And as we all understand the true purpose of breathing trials and how to optimize them, we're going to get our patients off ventilators much sooner, walking out the doors and actually going home to not come back. But thank you so much, Carson, for everything you shared. I'm looking forward to your future episode and um, we'll have you back on. Thank you. Thanks, Kelly. Schedule a consultation for your ICU, as well as find supportive resources such as the free ebook, case studies, episode citations, and transcripts. Please check out the website www.daytoniceconsulting.com.